Well, good morning, church. There's uh, a few more of you here than there were at 10 o'clock. So um, those who came in late, good to see you. And those, um, well, good to see all of you, let's, let's be honest. But um, yes, I'll just keep talking. So, you know, so I've just been uh, in Melbourne all weekend and just we literally drove uh, back this morning for me to be here. The family kept on driving home to sleep. Um, and so like because we've had late nights and all that kind of stuff. So this could be fun this morning because when I'm tired, I kind of say stuff that maybe I shouldn't. So we'll see how, we'll see how today goes. But it is good, as Wendy said, to, to gather in the name of Jesus to, to celebrate him together. And as we've just sung, you know, in whatever we're, we're going through, in good times and in the challenging times, that yet to declare our, our faith and our trust in him in the midst of it all. Um, uh, I think what a, what a wonderful way to start our time together this morning. Um, David's on, on leave uh, this week and actually this month, so he's, he's absent for uh, the time. So for, for you, if you have any kind of pastoral needs or issues, I'm going to be the one to contact or the pastoral care team, um, or you can continue to use our prayer at wdbc.com.au uh, email. If you're here and you've got little kids, kind of the ones that normally go in the side room, so little and junior kids, Kid, that is still happening uh, today, though um, bigger kids is not uh, for kids' church. So uh, if you've come in with kids that age and you weren't aware that is still happening and you can take them through, that would be awesome. This coming weekend is Easter, which is exciting um, because as Wendy said, uh, as we opened up, we, we are spending our time focusing on what it is that actually brings us here, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and all that he's accomplished for that on, on our behalf. So on Friday, Good Friday, we are gathering here at 9am, so an hour earlier than normal, and we'll have our service. And then after that, we'll have um, hot cross buns and share in, in them together. And then Easter Sunday, 10 o'clock as normal, though with no evening service, so just the one service. If there was hot cross buns left over on Friday, we'll be having some of them on Sunday as well. Um, but over the weekend too, it's free coffee from the coffee cart. So uh, I don't know, tell all your friends if that's the thing that gets them here. Um, let's go with that. But um, if you're going to be here anyway, enjoy that. And part of the reason of that is, you know, at Easter we celebrate God's incredible generosity to us. Uh, that he did not spare even his own son yet gave him for us. And so... Look, if we can give out free coffees as a very small reflection of the grace and the generosity of God towards us, then, then let's do that and celebrate Easter together in that way. I think that's probably all the things I need to tell you. Um, so how about I pray and then we'll get into, we'll get into the Word together. God, we do just gather as your people to hear from you again this morning. And we just pause at this time before we, we get into your word. We pause just to quiet our spirits, to calm our, our, our racing thoughts and minds, and to just become aware of you present with us in our midst. That with every breath we take in, we're breathing in the breath that you have given to us. That every breath we breathe out, it's a, again, a, it's a gift from you uh, as you breathed out your word uh, and your life into us. 
So we breathe you in and out and in and out. And we take time to, I guess, settle from all that has gone before us as we've come here this morning. The kids might have been unruly, refusing to get in the car. There might have been an argument with a spouse. Could have just been running late, slept in, forgot to feed the dog and you're stressing about that. Wherever we've come from, but we just want to lay that before you and just give that up so that it wouldn't distract us, wouldn't preoccupy us, and instead that we'd be ready to hear. So we want to say, God, like Samuel did, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And with that phrase, there's that implication that we'll respond in obedience to what it is that you speak to us. So give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, the heart to respond, the body to put it into action. And we pray through our hearing of your word and responding to it, that you are glorified. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is something in us, isn't there, that is drawn to the spectacular. Um, whether it's the sight and sound spectacular of a concert, maybe it's slowing down on the freeway to, to gawk at the accident on the side of the road, whether it's the shock of a slap at the Oscars or a contentious church meeting. We are drawn to these things that are out of the ordinary. They add variety and spice to our lives. I mean, it's, it's even why we go out for dinner or, or for brunch. I mean, chances are we could cook the same things at home ourselves. I go out for brunch and I get eggs on toast. I could do that at home. But it's about the environment and the atmosphere and you know, the, the little extra, I don't know, rocket or whatever that they put on it that, that I don't do at home. It's the, it's the something extra, there's something more. There's, something that there's an appeal to these things because they take us out of the ordinary and out of the mundane of our lives and they give us you know, something to talk about with others. The book of Judges that we've been working through at the moment is a book that just goes from one spectacle to another. Some of the, the spectacles are, are positive. They're like fireworks on New Year's Eve. They're, they're, they're good and they're exciting to see. But others of them are the most depressing and distressing train wrecks that you would ever imagine. But we know who they are, don't we, the, the judges? We know Ehud, the left-handed saviour. We know Deborah, the, the one woman judge in the whole book. We know Gideon and his fleece. We know Jephthah. We may not know his name, but we know that there's some guy who, who uh, offers up a human sacrifice, and we'll get to that in a few weeks' time. And of course, there's Samson, you know, strong Samson with his long flowing hair and, and all the stories that go around him. But I wonder, as you think about the book of Judges, and all these kind of spectacular 
characters within it. I wonder, do you know about Tola? Have you ever heard of Jer? I suspect not. But they too are in the story. They are less flashy. There's no drama associated about them. So they're not ones who who we know. They're not the ones that we're drawn to. They don't stick in our minds. And yet, they show us something really important. So let's pick up the story from where we're up to. Um, it's not going to be on the screen, so you need to grab your Bible or your device and open it up to Judges chapter 10, and that's where we are today. We're going to pick it up from verse 1 of Judges chapter 10. And it says there that after the time of Abimelech, which is what we, who we heard about last week, after the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, named Tola, son of Puah, the son of Dodo, raised to save Israel. And he lived in Shemir, in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years, and when he died, he was buried in Shemir. And he was followed by Jer of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth-Jer. And when Jair died, he was buried in Cayman. Now, what has been the usual pattern as we've gone through judges? Usually, there's been a judge, and while they lead Israel, things are okay. But then they die, and the Israelites forget about God, and, and they come under oppression until that time when they finally cry out again to God. But what do we see? Do we see where do we see that in these two judges? Well, we don't. Instead, these nobodies, these unspectacular, ordinary, unknown leaders of Israel seem to just quietly and faithfully lead the nation through these times. There's no mention of Israel doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's no oppressive foreign power kind of subjugating them. They are living, it seems, in a time of peace, a time of stability, maybe even a time of prosperity as given away by um, Jair and his 30 sons and 30 donkeys and and all of that. They're certainly living in a time uh, of prosperity in relation to what they had been under, under the Midianites. And so we might be drawn to the spectacular. We might love those grand stories, the, the spectacular sights. We might be drawn to that, but I think we actually want to live in just the plain Jane ordinary. It's as, and this is as true in politics, you know, as an election looms, as it is in the church or in other spheres of our lives. We, we want leaders who lead without fuss, who lead without drama, who just do what needs to be done. We want leaders who don't have an ego, and so they're not just trying to do anything to draw attention to themselves or, or to get prestige or to get wealth or anything like that, but who rather they are leaders who just consistently and steadily and faithfully act for the good of the people that they lead. Or we want a Zelensky rather than a Putin. Uh, I mean, who had even heard of Vladimir Zelensky before Russia invaded his country? He was a nobody. He was an unknown, and yet faithfully, quietly, stably, sta- I don't know if that's a word, stably led his country. We are drawn to the big, the strong, the flashy, and the fancy. It, it captures our attention and our imaginations. But I think what the Word says to us this morning is to not despise the small things, not despise the ordinary things like 
faithfulness and stability and, and peace that we see in leaders like Tola and, and Jer. And in his absence, I would use um, the examples of Tola and Jer to acknowledge David's leadership of, of us over these last years. He has been a steady, calm, consistent leadership presence, not, not reacting to, to the drama, not seeking attention or anything like that, but just steadily and faithfully leading us through what has been a tumultuous time. He's a, exerted a gentle and, but a firm pressure to lead us through. And not everyone has liked it necessarily or agreed with it. Uh, but rather than trying to please anyone and everyone, he has faithfully sought God and has sought God's will as he has shepherded us, shepherded us with skillful hands and integrity of heart. And he's done so not only in the big things like navigating lockdowns and vaccine mandates and all that kind of stuff, but he's done it in the ordinary matters of everyday, everyday lives. He's done it in the context of people's relationships and their mental health and their marriages and, and their funerals and, and all the rest. And so I just want to affirm that we are, as a church, truly blessed to have had David leading us over these years and we should rightly be giving thanks to God for him. For him as an unknown, nobody, ordinary leader who has yet been used by God to provide peace and stability and calm through this time. So I know then too that he's on leave for the, for the next month, but I'm sure if he, if he got bombarded with a text message or a card from you and, and Diana as well, um, that would be an encouragement and a blessing to him. I'm sure that that would be appreciated as well. But let's come back then to the text. Like I said, he's not here, so he doesn't know that we've said that stuff about him. As we come back to the text, after Tola and Jer and, and the kind of respite of calm that was provided by their rule, things then revert back to that familiar pattern that, uh, that we're used to from Judges, where it says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So let's, let's read what happens then from verse 6. It says, Again, the Israelites, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And I think here, it's, again, it's important to say, don't despise the small and the ordinary things. Because we, we don't typically wake up one morning and, and, and think, you know what, I'm done with following God, I'm going to become a pagan. It doesn't happen like that. It's, it's too big of a leap for us. And, and that would be true even of the Israelites. It would typically be a more gradual process where we drift in the small things. It's missing at church occasionally for a special event, but then it becomes more regular until you rarely ever go. It's the slightly longer glance at a woman on the street 
and to then begin to daydream about someone who's not your wife and to then actively begin to flirt until there's the affair. It's the social drink on a, on a weekend until it's weekend drinks, whether it's social or not, until it's then every day, until you're drunk you know, regularly most nights. We don't start there. And we don't wake up and go from this to that. But we drift as we stop paying attention to the small, ordinary things. And we get there, we get from here to there because we relax on that small stuff. We become complacent. We get comfortable. And so, so look at that here in this passage. After it's 45 years of peace between the two reigns of Tola and Jer. It's 45 years of peace and security and relative prosperity. It's then that the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they went after all the gods <laughs> of all the surrounding peoples. They went after the gods of Aram to the north. Never eat soggy wheat weeks. Uh, they went after the gods of Aram to the northwest. Sidon to the northeast, Moab to the southeast, Amorites to the east, and the Philistines to the southwest. They didn't go after a god of the west because that's just ocean, no one's there, but they went everywhere else around them. They became enculturated by literally all the nations, all the countries, all the peoples around them. They became complacent in their faith because, you know, Things were okay, and so they felt like they didn't need God. And in that complacency, they drifted bit by bit by bit by bit and went after any and every God other than God that was, you know, cool, and that all the other nations followed. And we see this going on in our culture around us. You, you see it in books and movies where in relation to, to spirituality, it's things like, you know, I'll, I'll just put it out to the universe it's belief in, in karma and past lives. It's, it's aliens impacting the earth. It's trusting in crystals. It's, it's aligning our, our lives with the meridian lines of energy that cross the earth. It's, it's any and every God other than the real God. And to be honest, this is not something that we see just in the, church, uh, just in the world, in the culture around us, but we see it in us and in the church. I mean, instead of faith in God, in our comfort and in our complacency, we've become influenced by the culture around us as well. And we, we have our faith in our money, you know, what we earn and what we've saved and how we've invested in, in it and how it will see us through into the future. That's not to not be a good steward, but it's about the question about where our, our faith and our confidence actually is. We put our faith in our health. We delude ourselves that we're into thinking that we're fit and healthy and we always will be. We put our faith in our intelligence. You know, that we're smart people. We can figure this out. We can, you know, solve this problem and work our way through to a solution. We put our faith and trust in our location. Uh, I know this, this is me. We live in a nice part in the world and we are far enough from any life-threatening dramas. Uh, my, my, I don't know what it is for you, but, but I kind of go, yeah, we'll be okay in Wodonga. I mean, if a war comes to Australia, that's going to be really hard to do in the first place. And if it does, they're not going to target Wodonga, so we'll be right. And so my faith and my trust and my confidence is in where I live rather than in the faithfulness and sovereignty of God in that. We have it good. And in that goodness, our danger, like it was for the Israelites, is that we drift. 
we drift away from a lived day in, day out, expressed faith in God. And as we drift, one day we wake up and we find ourselves doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. I was at an intensive for some study the other week and one of the presenters made the statement that privilege and this room, we are privileged. Privilege is a distinct spiritual disadvantage. And she said that, and I was, I was pretty floored by that because I think she's so right. Because when we have things good, when things are going well, like it was for the Israelites, like it is for us, we don't rely on God and His grace, and there's no need for us to grow in our faith. It's in circumstances of trial and, and adversity and that we then become dependent on, it, on Him and throw ourselves on Him and seek Him out in all things and grow. But here is where God is good because he loves us too much to leave us like that. He loves us too much to leave us in our complacency. And so that's why we see he becomes angry with the Israelites and he sells them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who we read shattered and crushed them. (laughs) Those, Those are pretty strong words. And it's from that place then, that place of great distress, that then the Israelites cried out to God again. Now again, as we think about the pattern of what we've seen in Judges, what would we expect to see here? They've done evil, they've been oppressed, they cry out to God. The pattern that we've normally seen is that then what happens, they cry out to God and then God raises up a saviour for them. He raises up a judge who delivers them. And we could reasonably expect that that's what's going to happen again here because this this time it even seems like Israel is actually owning their sin and, and confessing it. Before they've just cried out to the Lord. This time they've said, they they cry out, because we've forsaken you, because we've gone after other things. It's like, you know, this time maybe this is something a bit more real is going on here. So we could expect, given the pattern, given what Israel has done, we could expect that God would raise up another judge, but that's not what happens. Let's read verse 11. The Lord replies to their cry out of distress. He says, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites, when they oppressed you and and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But, despite what I've done, but you have forsaken me and you've served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods that you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. God says that despite his repeated salvation of them, that they continue to persist in forsaking him and going after other gods. And so as a result, God says these profoundly sobering words, so I will no longer save you. Instead, He tells them to throw themselves on the mercy of the other guys that they've chosen and see how they go. It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis. 
And he says that in the end, there are, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. In effect, God is giving them what they demonstratedly, repeatedly want, say that they want. Sorry, let me... God is giving them what they repeatedly demonstrate that they want. That makes more sense. They, they are demonstrating with their actions, with their deeds, with their choices, that they want a life without God. And so God is saying to them, in effect, well, if I'm not your God, then you're not my people. God has a limit. It's like the, the husband who time and time again takes back his unfaithful bride until that comes to that point of saying, no more. Clearly, you don't want life with me. Clearly, you want life with someone else. So go and live that life. No more of this. He's, and I think then we take from this that God's love and his grace cannot be assumed, cannot be abused, cannot be taken advantage of. I mean, Paul writes to the Romans, he says, where grace increased, uh, sorry, where sin increased, grace increased all the more to, to cover that. And so he, he asked the question, shall we then go on sinning so that grace can increase? I mean, after all, if God is glorious when he saves us you know, from one sin, if we do a hundred, if we do a thousand, if we do, no, if we do more and more sin, and he saves us from that, then surely his grace is all the more glorious. So shall we go on sinning so that his grace may increase? But Paul's response is definite. He says, by no means. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? This offers us a profoundly serious warning. It means that we can't say that we're a Christian, we can't say we're part of the family and the people of God, and yet consistently and repeatedly and deliberately continue in sin that rejects Him and that denies Him. His love and His grace cannot be assumed, abused, and taken advantage of because there is a limit to what He will tolerate. God has a limit. And yet... In one of the wonderful, boggling mysteries of who he is, where God has a limit, at the same time, his love and his grace do not. Verse 15, the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. God could bear their misery no more. But we're not actually told what he did. However, it's left implied to us that, that in what in the subsequent events that comes that that God acts from here and he acts consistent with his enduring love and compassion and faithfulness towards his people. It reminds me of God's description of himself to Moses where he says that I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and the gracious God, who is slow to anger, but abound and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness. 
rebellion and sin. This story seems to show us that there's a limit to what God will take, but then he will still continue to express his compassion and his grace even then beyond that. His anger burns against sin and he will not leave it unpunished, but he will also show grace. And we see this supremely in Jesus, in the events that we're going to celebrate this coming weekend over Easter. Paul writes in Romans, You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die even for a righteous person, though for a good person, you know, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own incredible, abundant, overwhelming, you know, boggling love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. See, in the cross, God's anger against sin is expressed and it's satisfied. And his grace and his mercy and his love and his compassion and his forgiveness is extended to us, even while we're still sinners, even while we're still rejecting him and denying him. We don't have to get our acts cleaned up first because it's while we're sinners that Christ saves us. Our hope is not in our behavior, but it's in God's character. And I think the Israelites knew that too. I mean, yes, we see that they got rid of the foreign gods that were among them, which is the only time in Judges that we see them do that. But it's more that they threw themselves on God's mercy. They knew, God, we have sinned. Do with us then whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And it's then in response to, to that that they cleaned up their acts. But their hope, though, was first in who God is and how God is towards them. And so we too have that hope. I mean, we can look at the accounts of judges and we can shake our heads at the Israelites and what they did. But though the specifics may be different, we need to remember, or, or perhaps we need to realize, that we are no better. You know, we may not kill anyone like Abimelech did, but our angry, bitter words about someone are just as lethal, are just as deadly. We may not bow down to Baals and, and Ashtoreths, but we sacrifice and serve and lay it all on the altar for gods of health and wealth and, and well-being. We may not demand sign after sign after sign to prove God's will to us that he's already shared with us, but we doubt or, or we disobey what we know to be true from his word. We're not any better than the Israelites, however much we might like to comfort ourselves in thinking that we are. We are not any more deserving of God's grace than they are. I'm sure if the story was written of our lives and of all the times that we've drifted away from God and cried out to him and he's taken us back and then we've drifted and we've, and, you know, and we've cried out to him and he's taken us back, if that account was written, we too would get to that point of going, I'd give up on them. Matt, he's useless. But God somehow, for some reason... Well, that reason being his love doesn't give up on us. And he continues to show grace, even though we are not deserving. In fact, 
when we start to think that we deserve it, well, then it's no longer grace. Then, it, then it's merit. And so I think we, we come to this point where we go, we can't assume God's grace, but we can depend on it. We can trust our lives in it, on it. We can um, trust in the God who consistently acts faithfully uh, to who he is, that he is the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and forgiving sin and wickedness. And so it's to him that we come again now as his people. So let's, let's pray. God, we want to thank you for your word and what you've spoken to us from it this morning. The thing about your word is that you don't pull any punches, but you lay it out to us how, how it really is. And you do that out of your love and your care and your concern for us. You show us the Israelites and your word tells us that, that these things are then written down for us as examples for us, as warnings for us to avoid. And so we see the pattern of the Israelites, God. And we can remove ourselves from them. I mean, that was, that was so long ago. That's not our world now. That's not my life. And yet, when we look beyond the specifics, we see ourselves in their story. God, we are prone to drift and to wander. Our hearts go after any and every God other than you, despite how good you consistently show yourself to be to us. And so, God, at this time, we, we just want to confess that to you as well. We want to repent of it. God, I pray that none of us in this room reach that place where, where you would say, I'm no longer going to save you. I mean, that's a scary, dire place. May we have hearts that are humble enough, soft enough, responsive enough that we turn back to you way before that point. And that you know, it might, be, it might be ordinary, it may not be flashy, but that we would just live quiet, stable, peaceful, faithful lives of following after you. God, the reality is though, we are here today as your people and yet we're sinning. You know, for some of us, there might be that, that deliberate, consistent, repeated, ongoing rebellion against you and so God we just want to lay that down before you to confess it and surrender it and to give that up because <laughs> the, the great mystery of your love and your grace is that even when you come to your to the limit yet there is yet more grace to be given so we don't want to abuse that or assume that. 
But God, man, we desperately need to receive it. We need your grace in our life. We need your love and your compassion to forgive us yet again. And so then, God, as we consider Jesus, who bore your anger against sin, that we might experience the wonder of your forgiveness. May we give our lives to him afresh again now. May we surrender our will to yours, to follow you in all of our ways, to not have to be in dire straits before we turn to you, but even in the good and the comfortable times to, to be surrendered before you. So we pray this, God, then in Jesus' name. Amen.